pray that you'd speak to us now through the word. In the name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Craig Thompson. I'm one of the pastors, and I can assure you that it is our privilege to have you with us as we've come together to worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. A um, couple things, uh, a, lot, a lot of guests with us this morning, and I'm glad that you're here. If you have children, something crazy is going to happen at the end of service. So I want to give you uh, advanced warning. We have the Lord's Supper today, uh, and because we want our children to participate in that with us, um, uh, toward the end of my sermon, the kids will just kind of start filtering back in, and they're going to come try and find a seat with mom and dad. So you might need to help them kind of figure out where in the world you are um, if they don't remember. But just know uh, that there's nothing wrong. There's, there's nothing crazy going on. We just want our children to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. We think it's super important. And so uh, somebody will step out and leave in the middle of my sermon and go tell them that we're getting close to the end. Now, if you see somebody get up and leave, don't get your hopes up. That doesn't mean we're actually getting close to the end. It just means they think we're getting close to the end. So, um, uh, but uh, that is going to happen, and so parents, just be, be aware, if your children left and you kind of spread out, you might want to start squeezing back in, because they're coming back um, in just a little while. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. Uh, we do have a large team leaving this week for Scotland, and at the very end of our service, even though it's not in your bulletin, I'm going to call an audible right now, we are going to do a commissioning prayer at the end of our service. Um, so uh, do be in prayer for that team. There are 12 uh, from our church that are leaving, uh, ranging in age from 15 to way older than 15, and that's all you need to know. Uh, but we celebrate that uh, as a church family. We're going to send them off, and then uh, in about a month and a half, Angela and I will be leaving to go to Latvia as our first trip to uh, Latvia uh, to begin that, that partnership there. So uh, lots of neat things going on in our church body that we are thrilled to death for you to be a part of. Um, so uh, just, just be aware. All right, if you would stand in honor of God's Word, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 6. Now, um, you, you'll remember where we've been with Jesus. Um, we, we, Jesus has healed the man with the demon in, in the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes. Um, Jesus has healed a woman with blood. Jesus has just raised Jairus' daughter. Now this is on the back end. Jesus, having grown in, in, in fame and notoriety, the world around Jesus is beginning to know who in the world Jesus is. He shows up and people take notice. And so at this point in time, Jesus takes his disciples and he says, we're going to go home. Not to their home, but to his home. Jesus is taking his disciples back to his place. You can imagine that the human side of Jesus must have been somewhat excited for his disciples to meet the people that he grew up with. Uh, so this is where we are. Beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 6. He went away from there. That's Capernaum. He went away from there and came to his hometown. That's Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Isn't that incredible? That wasn't considered mighty. He just healed some people. No big deal. And he marveled 
This is Jesus. He marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that um, we would never be the kind of people that cause others to marvel at our unbelief. Father, I pray that you would rip out our pride by the roots as we just sang. That, Father God, we would accept the obvious, ignore the irrelevant, Lord God, that we would exercise a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray these things in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. The sin of unbelief is rampant in our world today. It's, it's not as though this is a new thing. Uh, we all have a tendency to practice a, a, a form of chronological snobbery. Every generation assumes that their generation is, is better in many ways than those that preceded them and worse in other ways than those who preceded them. Okay? Those of you in here who are 80 years old can tell us today that your parents told you 60 years ago that they can't imagine the world, the, 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 this world is just so bad. All these young people are ruining it. Folks, the reality is that sin has existed since the Garden of Eden and unbelief has been prevalent among us since the fall of mankind. Pride is not new. Hubris has always been with us. We've always believed that we could live without the Lord's intervention. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Adam and Eve said, wasn't it? Thank you, God, for your instruction. But guess what? We can do good all by ourselves. We'll, we're going to figure all this out. God, you do your thing. We'll do ours. We took a show of hands this morning. How many of you would slide your hands up to say, that's been me? How many times have you said, God... I appreciate what you have to say, but you know what? I, I'll, I'll, I'll handle me. You do your thing. One of our members sent me a, a, an article just uh, one day this week. It might have even been yesterday. Making reference to the fact that 80% of Americans still believe in the existence of God, and yet church attendance is sliding into the basement. Because we proclaim Jesus with our lips... But we have no real acknowledgement of him with our lifestyle. You see, we're unwilling to acknowledge that we don't believe in him, but we're also unwilling to acknowledge that we actually need him. We're unwilling to acknowledge that there's actually a real legitimate need for the church of Jesus Christ. And to some degree, that's exactly where these hearers were in the synagogue at Nazareth. Filled with pride and unbelief. Listen, pride will get you killed. During the battle of the wilderness in the Civil War, Union General John Sedgwick was inspecting his troops. At one point, he came to one of the barricades over which he gazed out in the direction of the enemy. His officer suggested, put your head down. Duck. He said, Nonsense. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. He never finished the word. Was shot and died right there. Folks, how does your pride keep you from fully trusting Jesus? How does your pride keep you from fully trusting? Now, there's some of you for whom I need to say this. How has your pride kept you from trusting Jesus for your salvation? Because there's some of you, no doubt, in here today who have been good, in quotations, good enough that you don't really need Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, you do. Some of you, though, have given your life to Jesus at some point, but you've not given him all of it. You've not trusted him to take control. 
Our pride gets in the way. We've thrown out the instruction manual, just like we do with men, every piece of furniture we've ever bought, because that thing makes no sense anyway. We threw out God's instruction manual and said, I'll figure this out all on my own. We end up with a mess. How do we overcome the sin of unbelief and move from pride in ourselves to trust in Jesus? I think that this passage of Scripture can give us some pretty good, um, pretty good instructions because what this passage gives us is a picture of what pride can do. It gives us a picture of how unbelief manifests itself. And we can take this negative picture and turn it into a positive opportunity for ourselves. The first thing that we see is that we need to accept the obvious. Accept the obvious. Some while back I asked somebody how to spell a name. The name given to me, I'm going to make it up, was Jim Fontenot. Could you spell that for me? I don't know how to spell Jim. That's, that's a Louisiana Cajun name. How do you spell Jim Fontenot? And the person looked at me and said, well, it's J-I-M Fontenot. I said, is that a fact? <laughs> Folks, I had the obvious part handled. But you know, there's a whole bunch of us that are unwilling to actually accept the obvious. And we're busy trying to figure out the unobvious. Listen, the unobvious. I don't think that's actually a word. We're busy trying to figure out the hidden. When it comes to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing that we need to do is to accept the obvious. Now notice here, the people in, Jesus, in this story, the people in this passage of Scripture, were at first amazed. They were astonished, saying, where in the world did he get these things? This had never jumped out at me about this passage of Scripture. I think I was telling Kevin this earlier this week. Never in all of my readings of the Scripture had it jumped out at me in this passage that the people who denied Jesus were at first astonished at what he had to say. They were absolutely blown away. They were in awe. This is the guy they grew up with. They knew that he didn't have any specific training. He was not quoting uh, his college professors. He wasn't quoting you know, Fox News or CNN. He wasn't quoting uh, the, the, the Bible channel. Jesus was speaking to them from the Old Testament Scriptures and under the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He spoke to them as one who had incredible authority. Now, if we take Luke's account that I read to you just a few minutes ago from Luke chapter 4 as being the parallel account in this passage, what we see is that Jesus is making some pretty strong and bold statements. Listen, that passage I read earlier about the Spirit of the Lord being upon me, this is a, a, a quotation from Isaiah. And in this passage of Scripture, the, the claim is that this is the Messiah who's coming. It's a prophecy. Jesus reads to them the prophecy of Isaiah. And then in verse 21, he says this, Today, in, today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is what Jesus does. Jesus stands up in the synagogue Jesus takes the word from, from, from the, the synagogue president who would have had it. He reads it, and then Jesus drops the mic on him. Boom! Here it is. I am the fulfillment of all of these things. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He's throwing down the gauntlet right here. Up to this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus has lived sort of hidden. Remember just last week, he heals Jairus' daughter, and he says, Hey, let's keep this between us. Don't go make a big deal about this. 
as was said in our life group this morning, Jesus said, we're just going to let the facts speak for themselves. Let people figure out what in the world they may. This is a transition point in the book of Mark right here. Because from this point forward, the secret message, the secret plan of Jesus ceases to be quite so secret. And instead, Jesus is fully acknowledging who he is. I am the Messiah. Oh, by the way, guys, the one that you've been praying for, the one you've been taught about all your life, that kid that grew up down the street from you, he is the one. Now, that's pretty, pretty tough to stomach, right? It's, it's pretty tough. Somebody calls me and says, hey, Craig, your brother Jeff, he's, uh, he's actually the son of God. I don't know, you know, I, 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 I don't know. Something about that doesn't work for me. Like we grew up, he hit me with a block one time. Would the Son of God really do that? Like we were out in Dad's shop, you know, he picked up one of those wooden mallets and whack, he hit me in the head. Now when he did it, I remember him saying something like, be healed, I don't know, but it just doesn't seem to work. That's what's happening right here. But there's a difference. The difference is that Jesus has spoken to them as one with authority and he carries with him the reputation of one who is turning the world upside down. Listen, Capernaum and Nazareth about 20 miles apart. The gossip circle in ancient Galilee was not much different than it is right here in Kershaw County. The folks knew what in the world was going on. You couldn't hide the stories of Jesus' miraculous power. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. You don't think somebody showed up in Nazareth? Y'all remember Jesus? Y'all remember him? You know what he did? You know what he did yesterday? I was, I was on the road. I heard. He raised a little girl from the dead. They saw her dead. And then they saw him give her a peanut butter sandwich. She's alive. Jesus shows up. He walks into the synagogue. He says, but look, he had a hearing. Before he says anything, the people are coming. Listen, it wasn't like you just easily got to stand up in front of the synagogue. I don't know if y'all know what it looks like to have the opportunity to preach here. Somebody doesn't just walk in the back door and look at me one day and say, hey, I'd like to preach on Sunday morning. As a matter of fact, if somebody walks in the door and says that to me, they're going to get like the 16th degree. Like, who, who are you? Why do you want to preach here? Why, why, what would make you qualified to preach here? Jesus shows up and they just give him the platform. We want to hear what this guy has to say. In ancient synagogues, it was sometimes common for people because they, they held rhetoric to such a high nature. For, for guest teachers to actually not speak in front of the people, but to sort of whisper what they had to say into the ear of maybe the synagogue president or somebody else who regularly spoke so that that person could speak on their behalf. So they could be sure... That it was a decent message that was brought. Man, that's, that's, that's real sort of over control, isn't it? That's micromanagement to, the, to a T. Jesus doesn't have to do any of those things. He shows up and he reads from the scroll. What did he read? Go back. Let's, let's remember. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Was Jesus doing that? Absolutely. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Was Jesus doing that? Absolutely. Recovery of the sight to the blind. Was Jesus doing that? Absolutely. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Was Jesus doing that? You better believe it. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Was Jesus doing that? 110%. Jesus is doing all of these things. 
The only thing Jesus says is all that stuff that has been written, I'm the one. Just in case you were curious, I'm going to go ahead and put it out there on paper today. I am the one. And the people went, oh my goodness, there he is. I can't believe it. Listen to me. If you showed up here today and you're still kind of unsure about what you believe about Jesus, let me, let me say two things to you. First of all, doubt is not a virtue. Doubt is not a virtue. Doubt is natural. It's natural, but it's not virtuous to somehow doubt everything on the planet. The only reason you continue to live in doubt is because you haven't done the hard work to learn and figure out what in the world you want to believe, okay? So there was natural doubt among these people. There's natural doubt among you. If you came in here and you're a doubter in Jesus, you're a doubter in the Christian faith, let me ask you to first just do me this favor. Accept the obvious. Accept the obvious. The most obvious thing for us in 21st century America to accept is this. Nobody in all of history for 2,000 years has been able to produce the body of Jesus Christ. The most obvious fact in all of Christian history is this. Jesus lived and he died and there is not a body. If that is the most obvious fact, then the most obvious conclusion, though it speaks against all logical argument, is that he must have risen from the dead. And beyond that logical conclusion, the fact that all of his closest peers were willing to die for that truth suggests to us that no matter how logically implausible it may seem, it only makes sense to believe that Jesus actually died on a cross and rose from the grave. I'm going to ask you this morning to accept the obvious. You could come up with all sorts of other extravagant explanations, but you understand that the more extra, the, to, to explain it away is more extravagant than to believe the absolute obvious. John Dominic Crossan said that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that Jesus' body was actually left on the cross where it was eaten by dogs. And he has evidence of that. And the evidence that John Dominic Crossan has is that archaeologists one time found a piece of a heel bone with a spike through it. And from that, he proposes that all criminals were always left on the cross for their bodies to rot. How much more difficult is it for us to believe that Jews, understanding what we know about Jewish custom that day, would have allowed bodies to just hang on the cross through the Sabbath, through the Passover, and all these other things, than it would to believe that they took him off the cross and put him in a tomb? Again, all of these people died for that truth. Except the obvious. Many times the greatest obstacles to our faith are not that there are so many obstacles to our faith, but there are too many obstacles in our presuppositions. Did you walk in here today with the idea, the mindset, that I had to convince you of something? Or did you walk in here today with the idea and the mindset that perhaps all these things about Jesus have something true about them? Did you walk in here with an open mindset that said, I want to know about Jesus Christ? I'm curious, did you walk in here with enough humility in your own life to say, I have broken enough things in my life on my own. I need somebody else to help me figure out how to fix them. Except the obvious. The second thing this morning I want you to do is to, re to reject the irrelevant. Now, we see 
Well, let's start here. We, when, when those in the synagogue couldn't argue with Jesus' logic and wisdom, they attacked his character. Right? So let's, let's look. Oh, back to Mark, sorry. Where did this man get these, uh, get these things? Where is the wisdom given to him? Okay, they acknowledge that he's got great wisdom and incredible gifts. But since they don't have an argument against what Jesus has to say, look at what they do. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They said, Psh, who wants to believe what this guy says? We know what he does. He's just a plain old carpenter. That guy fixed my table three years ago. I saw him building a house down the road. This guy's not worth anything to teach us. He hasn't been trained. He hasn't been taught. He's not a rabbi. He's not a priest. He's nobody. He's just like me and you, except worse. Isn't that the son of Mary? Do you catch that right there? Do you catch the, the old 30-year-old rumor? Isn't that the son of Mary? Y'all remember him, right? Your mama told you about him, right? The timing didn't all work out. I mean, Joseph said that he was his, but... I mean, they really weren't together all that long before, lo and behold... Jesus comes. This, that's that illegitimate child of Mary, isn't it? Folks, do you know how easy it is for us to reject truth claims based on irrelevant data? Now, we see this happen in American politics all the time. Okay? We see it happen in American politics all the time. We're in the midst of, we will soon be in the midst of a, a, um, a, 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 an approval, that's not the right term, but approval process for a Supreme Court justice. And through the process of him being vetted, make no mistake about it, somebody will find some random thing that he said 25 or 30 years ago. It will come out in a Senate hearing, and it won't matter what he has said since then. It won't matter what he has taught. We will be told that he is untrustworthy because 30 years ago, he said that his wife serves him in his home, and that just automatically tells us that he hates women, period. And you shouldn't trust anything he says. And we see these kind of weird things come up all over the place. Now listen, there are lots of times when characters should come into play related to a person's thoughts or ideas. But primarily the character question that we should ask is whether or not the person is consistent with their ideals and ideas and their lifestyle. When Jesus' character was attacked here, they didn't deal with the arguments that Jesus proposed. This is not a logical argument. This is an emotional response. This is one of the most dangerous things that can happen in the church of the 21st century. It's for us to throw away our brains and get too involved with our hearts. Now, I just offended some of you because you've been working your whole life to get Jesus out of your brain and into your heart. I want him in your heart and your brain. He's got to be all over the place. But our arguments, our conversations can't be strictly emotional. We've got to actually think through these processes. Look at the criticisms they levied. Carpenter, illegitimate child. 
His brothers don't even want to hang out with him, remember? Don't forget it. We looked at that earlier in Mark. His family went and said, we think he's crazy. We need to take this guy home with us. Man, all of these things are known by the people. How do you overcome unbelief in your own life? Reject the things that are irrelevant. When we engage in evangelism and apologetics, it's not rare for us to have to deal with irrelevant arguments and criticisms. Could I talk to you about Jesus Christ? And people will respond with, well, Christians are just mean and hateful. I didn't ask if I could talk to you about Christians in general. I asked if I could talk to you about Jesus Christ. Could we consider the arguments that Jesus has to say? Well, Christians don't like me. Okay, could we talk about what the Bible has to say? Well, when I was little and we went to a church and this happened. No, no, can we please come back to the Bible? No, I don't want to talk about what it has to say because I can't argue with it. What I want to do is attack things that are irrelevant to the claims that you're making. Many of you are here today and you've not given your heart and your life fully to Jesus because you've come up with all sorts of irrelevant arguments as to why it is you shouldn't. I'm going to go to Medlin, so hold on. Some of you have never fully committed yourself to the local church. Even though you claim to be an ardent follower of Jesus, you've never fully committed yourself to a local church because you've come up with all sorts of irrelevant arguments as to why it is that you can't, shouldn't, or will not be a part of a local church. Can I just be honest with you? All of your arguments hinge on this one thing. You don't want to be. Hey, I appreciate that. You don't want to be. Now, I know that's mean and ugly, okay? I still love you. I would give you a hug when I said it to you if I could, but there's too many of you. So I'm, I, I want to temper it a little bit. I want you to hear this with, with compassion in my heart. I'm not saying that you haven't been injured by the church. There are some of you here today who have been hurt by the church. And for those of you that have been hurt by the church, I am really really sorry there have been christians and those who claim to be christians and those who are imp who are imposters in the church who have done incredible damage to fragile people and i'm sorry and if i could fix it i promise you i would I, I promise you i would for those of you that have been hurt by the church, just know it was never Jesus' intent that the church would hurt you, but that the church would be a place of healing and refuge for you. I want to ask you to reconsider this morning that perhaps the experience that you had is not the experience that you should have had, and it's not the experience that you can have if you'll come into a place where you can be known and you can know others and you can live your life among each other with accountability and care and love. So I, I first want to address those of you that have been hurt and injured. Some of you have had dumb things happen to you. I mean, really mean, awful things. And I'm sorry. But there's a whole bunch of you on the flip side who haven't actually been hurt by the church. You've just found it comfortable and convenient to use this argument. Well, the church is just full of hypocrites, and I don't want to be one of those. I don't want to be with those people. Okay, can, can we just interpret that into plain English like they say in Cassett? That's plain English. In Elgin, that's some other kind of English. But plain old English, you just don't want to be. Like, Can you stop making 
the excuses and just own it. That's what I would love. I would love it if we just owned it. If I were to say, hey, why is it that you've not committed your life fully to the church? What's keeping you from committing to Malvern Hill? If you just looked at me and said, you know what? I don't want that kind of commitment in my life. You know what the truth of the matter is, Craig? If I commit fully, then you're going to expect me to be there every Sunday. And I just don't want to be. You see, that's the truth for most of you. That's the truth. You know what, Craig? If I commit, you're going to, you're, y- y'all are going to expect that I tithe. And I don't want to give any of my money to Jesus in this church, okay? And what would happen if we just got real honest with each other? Wouldn't that be a little different? Can I urge you this morning to reject the irrelevant and deal with the reality? Let's get past the false arguments right here and deal with truth. They wanted to come up with excuses. You you get it? We're not going to follow him, period. So we need to come up with excuses for why we're not going to follow him. It's not because he's not right. It's because we don't want him to be right. Any of you ever had that argument before? Now, let's, let's just, men, how, long, how many of you have held on to your wrong argument for a long time just because you didn't want your wife to be right? Oh, come on. We all know it's true. We all know. Hey, how many of you have found yourself in the middle of an argument somewhere and you realize about three-quarters of the way in that you're, you're wrong? But your pride won't let you let it go. You're still going toe-to-toe. There's some of you here today. There, there are probably several of you here today who recognize, maybe you recognize a long time ago that you were wrong, but your pride just won't let you let it go. Would you reject the irrelevant? Not all Christians are hypocrites. Number one, not all churches are evil. 90% of them are. Number two, you're not so good that you're somehow too good to be with this group of really messed up people. See, we're kind of a messed up, sort of weird island of misfits right around here. You're not so good that we're going to somehow stain you. Reject the irrelevant. You need the Lord Jesus Christ, and you need His church. I'm sorry if it hasn't always looked as pretty as you wanted it to. But the fact that the pastor at Malvern Hill Baptist Church is not always fun and not as cool as you thought other pastors should be, or he's not this or he's not that, or the fact that the music isn't this or isn't that, or the fact that this person is or isn't that, is similar to saying, isn't that the son of Mary? Don't listen to him. Remember, they were amazed. Amazed. Blown away. Some of you have walked away from here blown away many times in your life. And you still haven't given your heart to Christ because you found a good excuse as soon as you got outside the door. Do you know what happened? You know what's on the other side of that door? Like we have steps at the bottom of the steps. I don't know where it's kept, but somewhere down there, there is like a, a whole treasure trove of excuses. They don't really come to you usually until you get past the glass doors. And usually on the porch, there's still enough church people around. You have to look the pastor in the eye when you leave. It's a little uncomfortable to come up with a good excuse right then. But you can make it to the bottom of those steps. And you can have an excuse formulated and perfected and written in a rough draft and a final draft and ready to be published by the time you make it to the car. There's something to think about. Reject the irrelevant. Number three this morning, finally, exercise a genuine faith. 
Watch this. The people of Nazareth were initially taken by Jesus, but when they considered that this was just one of their own, just an ordinary old guy, they refused to believe. Do you know, what, what might it have looked like if Jesus had given an invitation in the synagogue? What might it have looked like? Let's say that they brought every light down, every eye closed, every head bowed, no one looking around. And Jesus said, if you want to trust me, I just want you to slide your hand up and come forward. It says that they were blown away at his teaching. You know what I'm concerned about is a whole bunch of people might in that moment have said, yes, yes. But then they walked out and they said, no, I will not. A whole lot of people in the moment said, yes. And they got out the door and they looked at the sun. They said, no. He built that structure right there. That's his building. And I'll not be commanded by somebody who does that. Who does he think he is to come in here and tell me how to live my life? See, some of these people might have shown a shallow faith. For some of these people, this was the shallow, poor soil that Jesus had warned about in the parable of the soils. But when the cares of life came, it just scorched everything that was there. They had a wonderful religious experience. But they never, ever actually trusted Jesus with their lives. This morning, do you have a genuine faith? Or does your faith look more like the citizens of Nazareth? Do you have the kind of faith that looks really good under the lights of this sanctuary, but looks really bad at the bottom of those steps? Have you trusted Jesus with more than this moment? Have you trusted Him with all of your life? Have you? Have you accepted the obvious and rejected the irrelevant? Have you been willing to move past all the other noise around you? Say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what about you? Where's your faith? Just a few moments, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. I pulled the tablecloth up and showed you the last time we had the Lord's Supper. That Right on the front of that table, we've got in, in, engraved, This do in remembrance of me. Which is sort of a good King James version of, Y'all remember me when you do this. Why do we observe the Lord's Supper? We observe the Lord's Supper to be reminded of the very obvious truths that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sin. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to give you some very tangible reminders of what I'm going to do for you. This is my body, which is broken. And the disciples must have certainly been very confused trying to figure out what in the world he was talking about. You see, at that moment, it wasn't very obvious. At that point, the only thing they knew is that Jesus was feeding them. And he said, this is my blood. And they must have been a little concerned about what all that must have meant. But just a few hours later, they would see him hung on the cross. And they must have been reminded that his body was being broken and his blood was shed. But it still didn't take root. Do you recognize that the disciples, even then, didn't really appreciate the obvious in their life? Do you know that? You know, sometimes it's easy for us to overlook the obvious and to cling to the irrelevant because the irrelevant appeals to our emotions. 
What was irrelevant in that moment was that it seemed as though Pilate had won. But what was obvious is that Jesus had told him, I'm going to rise from the dead. The last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples was a precursor to what was coming. And it was given to them as a memorial and a reminder that Jesus wasn't just dying. He was dying for them, for you, and for me. This do in remembrance of me. Our children are going to be coming in just a minute as they do. I want you to consider what does it look like to remember Jesus through the Lord's Supper. As they come in, I I, I want to remind you also that the Lord's Supper is for those who have given their lives to Jesus, for believers in Christ, baptized believers in Jesus. The Lord's Supper is given to those. Why? Because it's a reminder for what Jesus has done for you. If you don't know the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior today, I would would urge you this morning to abstain from taking the Lord's Supper, but instead to take Christ as Lord and Savior. Today can be the day of your salvation. What is the obvious truth of God's Word? That Jesus loves you. He died on the cross to save you from your sins, and He desires to live with you forever. If you've never given your heart and your life to Jesus... Let me encourage you, don't leave here today without praying, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Would you save me? But at this time this morning, I'm going to ask our deacons to come forward. As our deacons come forward, I want us to all be reminded that this is not just an activity that we do. It's actually a, a picture. It's a symbolic picture. A perfect representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave us this picture so that we would know what he has done for us. The Bible says he began with the bread at supper. Apostle Paul teaches us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. 